On this week's 51%, the federal government has approved billions of dollars in incentives for infrastructure and chip manufacturing projects across the country. We'll speak with U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo about how she hopes to use that funding to advance women in STEM and the trades. You know, there are millions of women out there who would be great at these jobs. We need to find them, train them, attract them, and retain them. We'll also hear how everyday employees can contribute to an inclusive workplace. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. Today we're talking women in STEM and women in the trades, specifically what companies and lawmakers can do to better support women in traditionally male workplaces. As we've heard in previous episodes, women face their own set of obstacles in fields like construction, manufacturing, welding, science, and so on, even once they get the job. But at the same time, there's some serious opportunity in these areas. The federal government has made massive investments in the U.S. workforce over the past two years with the approval of packages like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Chips and Science Act. That's billions of dollars in incentives on the table for infrastructure and chip manufacturing projects across the country. And in turn, lots and lots of jobs. Here in upstate New York, Micron recently announced plans to spend up to $100 billion over the next 20 years on an extensive computer chip plant near Syracuse, which could bring up to 9,000 factory jobs and some 40,000 construction gigs to the area. U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo is in charge of a large portion of the incentives funding, and in recent weeks, she said she wants to make sure women get a fair shot at these jobs. Speaking at the Trades Women Build Nations Conference in Las Vegas last month, Raimondo outlined her plan to leverage the funding to improve conditions for women in the trades. There is no way that I'm investing $100 billion of taxpayer money, and that money is not, is not going to go to tradespeople who look like America, who look like you. I promise you that. So today, I'm here to announce a new initiative, a new initiative called A Million Women in Construction. Right now, right now, there's about a million women who work in construction. And I'm pledging to you that investing all this taxpayer money over the next five to 10 years, we're gonna get another million in construction in these high paying jobs. So how exactly would this work and why is it important? I recently spoke with Secretary Raimondo ahead of the midterm elections to discuss what she's hearing from workers. Jobs in the building trades are some of the best paying jobs you can get without a college degree. And particularly for women, you know, jobs that women without a college degree typically go into like retail or hospitality or housekeeping or CNAs pay on average like half of what you can make as a plumber or a pipe fitter or welder. And so we need to get women these opportunities. Also, women are awesome at these jobs. Some of the best, some of the best iron workers in America are women. Some of the best welders in America are women. So the challenge though, is there are a lot of obstacles. You know, women don't see themselves in these jobs. We have to do a better job of recruiting women, including as early as on high school campuses. 
And then we have to make sure that there's childcare, training, apprenticeship opportunities, and support for women. When you show up on a job site, if there's 600 people and one woman and 599 men, you don't feel welcome. You don't feel like it's your place. So there's a lot of obstacles that we have to overcome. And if you talk to women in the trades, they'll tell you in detail all of those obstacles they have to overcome every single day. So just to start out, what do you hope to see companies do about these issues? And why is leveraging incentives and pressuring companies the way to go about this as opposed to legislative action? It's a good question. You know, there are many tools. You know, I I think if Congress wanted to take action, that would be great. But right now, the tools that we have at the Commerce Department are these incentives. And so we're going to use these tools to maximum effect. You know, right now, only about 9% of building trades jobs are held by women. And in some trades, the really skilled trades, it's only 2 to 3%. So clearly, we're not doing enough. You know, there are millions of women out there who would be great at these jobs. We need to find them, train them, attract them, and retain them. Companies have to care. It has to be a priority. I'll give you some perfect examples. Uh, right now on many job sites, the harnesses or helmets only come in size large or bigger. They literally don't fit a lot of women. That's unsafe. Fix it. That's an easy fix. Training. You know, every apprentice that goes through a union apprentice program to become a welder or plumber or pipe fitter, you have to go through training. Right now, There's not a standard set of training for every apprentice around sexual harassment or discrimination training. That has to happen and it has to be enforced. Like there's still a lot of harassment that goes on in the workplace on these construction sites. It has to stop. It has to be enforced. And basic things like having men's and women's bathrooms. You can't believe the stories you hear from women construction workers there's a, two porta potties and they're for men and women and the men complain or the foreman will look at his watch when the woman goes to the bathroom. Like that stuff has to stop. If we're going to be serious about tapping into the full talent potential, which includes women, then we have to, like I said, make these adjustments, which are common sense. Honestly, it's shocking to me the more I learn about this, how these conditions still exist. And it's just, you know, we just have to be committed. You ask it, companies have to be committed to changing the training, providing the support, providing childcare. That's a huge issue so that women can be in the workforce. I'm hoping for some details on the actual like application and leveraging process here. So how exactly does this work on your end? And what's the timing here? Is this something that is already happening or that you're hoping to do and could impact like recently announced projects like Micron's planned $100 billion investment in central New York? Yeah, yeah. So the Commerce Department has two big initiatives right now that hire a lot of construction workers. The first one is broadband implementation. Congress gave the Commerce Department $50 billion to make sure every American has broadband. And then the other one is CHIPS, another 50 billion. So we have $100 billion 
we think between those two programs will create probably 200,000 construction jobs. And we're going to put a lot of strings attached to that money of all kinds, by the way. You know, I mean, not just around women. You know, we want high quality projects. We prefer project labor agreements because it has, you know, better working standards and ensures a higher quality project. Um, you know, we want a certain amount of diversity, et cetera. So sometimes we're going to require certain things. You know, if people want taxpayer money, that we're going to require taxpayer protections. Sometimes we'll encourage it. So we'll say, for example, if you want taxpayer money, you know, big semiconductor company, you, you, call, you talked about Micron. A project like that one in Syracuse will take years to build. So if they want tax incentives, we're going to encourage them to have on-site childcare. You know, not require it, but encourage it because these are competitive grants. And so the companies that come forward that have a, you know, better applications, do what we encourage, are going to have a better shot at getting the money. Do you feel that companies will be overall receptive to implementing these measures or could it possibly discourage them from building here or building there? And I guess what kind of oversight do you envision being needed to make sure they follow through with it? I don't think it, it should not be a discouragement because we're only going to be encouraging or requiring things that are good for the project, you know, that are good for the company and that are good for taxpayers. What we're trying to do here is have high quality projects that are on time, on budget and, you know, meet the mission. So, you know, if companies, if companies want to cut corners, not pay good wages, not commit themselves to inclusivity, then they're going to be at a disadvantage. But I would argue those aren't high quality projects. So we're going to view this as a real partnership. You know, this isn't us telling them what to do. This is a partnership to raise, you know, raise the standards. And I, I, I see it as a really as a win-win. You know, by the way, just let's be honest about this. There are not enough construction workers in America right now. So, you know, Micron, just to pick on that, for example, they're based in Idaho. Or Intel has announced they're going to Ohio. The unemployment rate in Idaho, Ohio, Indiana is like 2%. They need to be hiring, you know, thousands of construction workers. It's in their interest to find women, train women, and retain women. Otherwise, we're not going to do a good job. Aside from the moral or ideal argument here, you argue a lot that, you know, this is good business sense and that this makes economic sense for the country as well. What do we have to gain economically by promoting gender equality in the trades? I mean, two things. One, women are some of the most talented, smartest, hardest working people in the country. Make some of the best engineers and semiconductor technicians out there and some of the best welders and plumbers and pipe fitters. They show up on time, work hard with attention to detail. Every woman that I have met in the building trades takes so much pride in her work. It's interesting, you know, they just want a chance to do a good job. They don't want to have to deal with all the baloney about being called cupcake or having a harness that doesn't fit. They just want to do their job and they're great at it. So if you want to build a great project, you need the best workers. 
And that means you have to tap into the entire talent base, not just half of the talent base, which is men. Um, but the other thing is you can't have a strong economy if certain people are left out. That's a weak economy. If only white men with college education to live in cities are the ones making a lot of money, that's a weak economy. And so what President Biden has said is a strong economy is an economy where everyone has a decent job. And we, we have a long way to go to make that possible, to make our whole economy you know, stronger and better and more competitive. As you said, we're in the midst of a labor shortage with unemployment at some of its lowest levels in decades. Aside from this, what other tools do we have to address the shortage and develop our workforce? We're doing a lot of work here at Commerce with the Department of Labor around apprenticeships. I think it's very important to allow people to get skills and training to do good jobs without necessarily getting a four-year college degree. Not everyone's cut out for college. College in this country is incredibly expensive. So what we're doing is bringing employers to the table to help work with training partners to design you know, new ways to get people the skills they need to do to do good jobs. Well, lastly, I am hoping to get your reaction to the current state of inflation and the state of our economy. Do you think we can avoid a recession? And how much longer do you see this going on? So, you know, obviously the Fed, again, raised rates. The Fed's actions are designed to slow the economy. So the economy will slow. Like that that's a fact <laughs> because they're going to continue to raise rates until they slow down the economy so we can get inflation under control. So I, I think it's obvious that our economy will um, slow down and inflation will get under control. We're seeing some signs, you know, if gas prices went down over the summer. You're seeing uh, some cooling in the housing market, but there's a ways to go. Obviously, there's a lot of things out of our control, like the war in Ukraine. You know, the war in Ukraine is the primary reason that gas prices are high. Um, COVID disruptions to the supply chain. So I would say I am still optimistic about America's economy. I'm realistic. I know folks are struggling with high food and gas prices, and we have to get that under control. Yes, we're seeing growth slowing, but companies are still hiring. Companies are really innovating. Productivity is up. If you look at the month of September, job openings are really strong. If you want a job, you can get a job. So I think that um, it will be choppy. But overall, I think fundamentally, we're in a good spot. By the way, I'd rather be in the American economy than any other economy in the world. Our economy is growing faster than China, faster than Europe. Our inflation is lower than in Europe and in other places. So I think we are well positioned. That's Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Madam Secretary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
While Raimondo wants to see more companies and CEOs take the lead on developing a diverse workforce, our next guest argues rank-and-file employees are not exempt from that call. In her new book, How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador, Everyone's Role in Helping All Feel Accepted, Engaged, and Valued, Celeste Warren lays out how employees at all levels of a business can do their part to contribute to a more inclusive workplace. Warren herself has been working in the realm of DE&I, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion, for decades. She's the vice president of Merck's Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence. And she stresses that the heightened conversation around diversity in our society is not just some fad or trend or crisis that businesses can ignore and wait out. She says it's a permanent shift in our workplace culture, and businesses and employees have a lot to gain by speaking up and getting on board. The book takes you and and explores different personas, if you will, different types of people in the organization and gives examples, pragmatic examples of how they can be DE&I ambassadors. And so let me take one that involves more people than not is the individual contributor, those that are not people managers. And one of the things that they can do, because a lot of times they feel they're not empowered to do anything, to make change, because I'm not a people manager, I'm not in HR, how can I do anything? And there's really a lot of things that they can do. One is, first of all, we introduce a a three-step model. First is you have to assess yourself. Basically take an assessment of what are your strengths and your areas of development, your opportunities when it comes to your DE&I capabilities. So there's lots of online assessments that you can take. If you just Google online, you can do a lot of free ones that you can take. You can also look and check and see in your organization if they have any types of 360 tools or feedback tools that that your learning and development organization might have on hand for anyone to participate in. You can use that as well. And then also a real simple one is to basically just kind of have lunch or dinner or meet with someone who's a trusted colleague at work and ask them a series of questions about how you show up when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So for example, at meetings, how do I show up? Do I advocate for other people who might feel marginalized in the meeting? Do I bring up topics around diversity and inclusion? Do I try to be inclusive? Do I demonstrate inclusive behaviors? in meetings or in our our, relationship. And so there are lots of different ways that you can assess what are some of your strengths and then what are some of the areas that you could probably work on. So once you do that, you look around you. So look at your department, look at your company. Do they have flexible work arrangements in your company? Does your manager have time in their staff meetings to talk about diversity and inclusion? Do you see, you know, when you look at online at your company's employee handbook or your policies, do your policies really inspire people of all different dimensions of diversity? Do they have a chief diversity and inclusion officer? Do they have employee resource groups or affinity groups? And do they have training that employees can take part of that helps them to be more inclusive um, around that? So there are lots of things that you can look at to see if your company is truly diverse or if your department is demonstrating diversity and inclusion. Another easy thing is like go online to your company's website and look at the images, look at the photos. Are the photos pictures of people from diverse backgrounds? Do they reflect the diversity that exists in in that particular country that you're from or uh, part of the world? And then once you've assessed yourself and you've taken inventory around you, then you have to take action. 
because just having these ideas in your head isn't going to really help us to advance diversity and inclusion within the organization. So take action. And there are lots of things that individual contributors can do. For example, ask your manager at a staff meeting if you can just facilitate a half hour or 45 minute discussion around diversity and inclusion. And you can do that very easily by getting an article online on diversity and inclusion that everyone can read, send it out ahead of the staff meeting, and then let everybody know that, you know, we want you to read it and we're gonna have a discussion. You can get involved and join an employee resource group. You can lead a chapter, start a DNI council in your area. So lots of different things that you can do to take action and really try to drive diversity and inclusion throughout your department and then also throughout the organization. So at a management level, like what are the opportunities and responsibilities at that level for people who are trying to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace? I really want to see those leaders who are responsible for larger organizations. They really are accountable for trying to make sure that they're driving diversity and inclusion through their management teams and then also through their organizations. And they can do that by making sure that there is a strategy around diversity and inclusion, and they're communicating progress on that strategy on an ongoing basis with their management teams and their employees through town halls and leadership team meetings and management meetings. So you have to make sure that you are driving that accountability throughout your leadership teams. Secondly, you have to role model, you know, role model the behaviors that you want to see. If you want a more diverse and inclusive environment, then you have to demonstrate and role model inclusive behaviors, making sure that at every moment you're integrating diversity and inclusion through your talking points. When you're talking about your business, you're talking about your customers, you need to make sure that you're integrating diversity and inclusion in those conversations because your customers are very diverse, whatever field and industry you might be in. Talking about that from that perspective really helps people to see that you're demonstrating the behaviors that they should emulate as well. If you're looking for work and you're specifically looking for a company that is doing well on this front, how do we know the difference between lip service and actual change? What does real change look like as opposed to optics? It's about what you show your employees, what you show also externally to the external world too. And so, for example, I mentioned the website and does your website have your values and standards around diversity and inclusion? Do you talk about it? Um, so people, when they go in and they're looking at your company, they see that you do value diversity and inclusion and you have examples of how you do that, you know, excerpts from your strategy, et cetera. What do your leadership teams reflect? Are they diverse across many different dimensions of diversity, those you can see and those you can't see? If, is someone able to see that, that diversity is at your senior levels, your board, um, which is very visible online. You can see the, the makeup of, of companies' boards and also your, your senior leaders, so your CEO and their direct reports. And then also too, within the organization, what policies do you have in place to make sure that you are driving a diverse and inclusive work environment? So for example, when you're talking about hiring and recruiting, do you have policies that say that you wanna make sure that you have a diverse workforce. 
And what does that look like? And is it visible to all employees so they can see it? A lot of companies have corporate responsibility reports that they issue on an annual basis and around their work in corporate responsibility. And in those corporate responsibility reports, what are you saying about diversity and inclusion and what you're doing? And so, you know, the policies, I, I mentioned a couple things like flexible work arrangements and, you know, job sharing and part-time work and, and how are you uh, enabling people of all different walks of life to really be productive in the environment, in the work environment. And then also too, we know that there's policies, but what are the actual practices? How are those policies coming alive? Are, are managers really ensuring that their employees know about the different policies and they're also talking about them and allowing and making sure that their employees feel empowered to be able to partake in those different policies. Does your organization have employee resource groups? Do they have those? Do they have, as I said, a chief diversity and inclusion officer? And, and you know, those are just, I think, some of the things that you would look at to see if an organization is truly inclusive when it comes to their environment. When it comes to diversity and inclusion, What are some of the common misconceptions or myths that you've encountered regarding this work? I think some of the, I'll call them either unconscious or sometimes even conscious biases that people have. A lot of times I hear hiring managers when uh, when they're hiring people, the recruiter or the HR business partner will say, you know, we want to make sure that you have a diverse candidate slate. And then the manager will come back and say, well, I want to make sure that, you know, I have quality candidates as well. I want the best person for the job. And a lot of times when I hear that exchange, I challenge the hiring manager and I say, okay, why did you feel a need to say that? Is it a fundamental belief that diverse candidates are some way inferior to those that aren't diverse? If you felt a need to say that, then you must believe that diverse candidates in some way, shape, or form are not as qualified for the role. And that is a misperception and a myth that people have to really explore in themselves, those biases that they have, those biases that say that if you're a woman and you're a mother, that you aren't really dedicated to being productive in the workplace. And we all know that that couldn't be any further from the truth. I was talking with someone earlier today and we were laughing about working moms, how we fight to be more efficient in the workplace because we have to balance so many different things. It's those biases that I think people have that they have to really explore and make sure that it's not causing them to make decisions about employees in the workplace that are going to put some groups of employees at a disadvantage. I feel like I've also read about a lot of companies who say that, you know, they'd love to hire more women or more candidates of color, but they're simply, they're not getting the applications. What do you say to that? Are there things companies can be doing to address what they see as a shortage of diverse candidates? I hear that a lot too. And the thing that I respond to is there is a wide world out there and also coming out of the pandemic, we've seen that some work can be done from remotely and from different places. And so that really broadens the pool of candidates out there that are available to companies. I definitely challenge them. And I basically challenge them by saying, 
you know, we can get diverse candidates in all different disciplines and functions. I don't think that's an issue because if your recruiting and staffing department is really good, that's part of what they do. They go out and, and they go to different career fairs and conferences that are really focused for different dimensions of diversity and different communities of people and candidates. So they can bring those candidates, those diverse candidates in as part of the selection process. And so you as a manager have to be really diligent about saying, if you don't get diverse candidates in your first sheets of, of candidates that you get, then you go back out to that recruiter and you say, I want diverse candidates and I'm willing to wait until you bring me diverse candidates as part of the candidates that you're bringing to the you know, selection process. Celeste Warren is the vice president of Merck's Global Diversity and Inclusion Center of Excellence and the author of How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador, everyone's role in helping all feel accepted, engaged, and valued. It's out now through many major booksellers. Celeste, thank you for taking the time. One last thing before we go. The midterm elections took place November 8th, and for voters in many states, abortion rights were on the ballot. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization over the summer essentially threw the subject back to states. And while some states have moved to restrict access to abortion and curtail abortion rights, others raced to instill protections. Voters in three states, Michigan, California, and Vermont, approved measures to enshrine abortion rights in their state constitutions. In Vermont, supporters call the move a historic win, while opponents say they were outspent and disadvantaged by a reaction to the Dobbs decision. WAMC's Pat Bradley brings us more. Vermont's Proposition 5 asked voters to amend the Constitution by adding Article 22, which reads, quote, personal reproductive liberty, that an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means, unquote. It passed 72 to 21 percent. Lucy Lurish is Planned Parenthood Vermont Action Fund Vice President of Public Affairs and President of the Reproductive Liberty Amendment Ballot Committee. Reproductive decisions are for people to make along with their clinicians and their healthcare professionals. Politicians have no business in our personal lives. And reproductive freedom means the freedom to determine your own life's course. And Vermonters in every single town in the state made that declaration very clear. Vermont ACLU Advocacy Director Falco Schilling said Vermont voters reflected national trends on reproductive rights. It's great to see that not only here but around the country, resoundingly, voters when they went to the ballot box supported reproductive rights and fought back against the anti-democratic efforts to restrict those rights. So that is one of the things that we're taking away from the historic victory both here in Vermont and around the country, 
um, that when voters actually get a chance to go to the ballot box and make these decisions, they're resoundingly standing up for the rights that many folks are trying to take away from them. Lurish says in the aftermath of the amendment's passage, they will focus on new laws. This campaign will be ramping down, but we'll probably be looking at some kind of shield laws to think about how we make sure that we're protecting healthcare providers who are providing care to people who might be traveling from out of state. We haven't seen a huge influx of patients coming into Vermont seeking abortion care. We have seen some. Vermont Right to Life Executive Director Mary Beerworth says they were at a disadvantage, claiming supporters spread misinformation about the amendment. Without question, Planned Parenthood had floods of money and they ran TV ads. They were extremely misleading. Everybody should know that Vermont has legal abortion, but since the Dobbs decision, there's been this attempt to sort of misconstrue the situation and feed into some panic that somehow abortion won't be legal here unless they vote yes for the Reproductive Liberty Amendment. The new article does not define reproductive liberty, and Beerworth anticipates extended debate during upcoming legislative sessions on the actual meaning of the clause. One of high-level Planned Parenthood officials openly said it's going to be decades of decisions by lawmakers. So does it mean that minors can access all and anything that relates to reproductive liberty without their parents? One legislator has promised to put in legislation to shut down our nonprofit pregnancy resource centers in Vermont. But I think we're going to see a lot of social issues. We're going to see an expansion of what that meaning of reproductive liberty is way beyond just abortion. Vermont's reproductive liberty amendment was passed by two separate legislatures prior to the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision. Following final legislative passage in February, Republican Governor Phil Scott in July approved placing it on the November ballot. I'm Pepper Atley, WAMC News. That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks again to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Celeste Warren, and Pat Bradley for joining us this week. And thank you for tuning in. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out on our website. That's WAMCpodcast.org. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half, he was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. A nightmare down the hall.